Hi, and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Laura Ehrlich, and tonight's guest is Lindsay Lerman. Writer Mother Monster conversations are streamed live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and then released as an audio podcast on all major platforms. As always, please chat with us during the interview, and we will weave your comments into the conversation. A special thanks as well to our sponsors and patrons listed on the Writer Mother Monster website. Your support helps make this show possible. And if you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a patron or patroness or a one-time donation to help keep this podcast going. You can look for details at writermothermonster.com. Now I'm excited to introduce Lindsay. Lindsay Lerman is the author of two experimental novels, I'm From Nowhere and What Are You?, she is also a translator and has a Ph.D. in philosophy. She sometimes teaches philosophy and creative writing. Her essays and short stories have been published in the L.A. Review of Books, New York Tyrant, Entropy, and elsewhere. She's working on her third novel and a screenplay, and she has a nine-year-old daughter. Lindsay describes writer motherhood in three words as too much love. Now please join me in welcoming Lindsay. Hey. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing what you do. I love your show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love your work. Um, and for anyone who has not yet had the pleasure of reading your books, we'll get to writing shortly. But first, let's start with those three words you used to describe writer, writer motherhood. And again, those were too much love. Tell us about that. Um, I think what I meant by too much love is probably that there's there's just too much there are too many things I love and too many things I want to do and spend my time doing and I just don't have the time um and that can feel like you know very standard probably for everybody I think uh but it it does change a little bit when you have a kid because um that love is so it can be so all consuming and um a kid will never say to you, just stop giving me attention and love. You know, I guess it's probably pretty rare for a kid to say that. And so uh you really have to just like uh not stop the love, but at some point you have to say, I, I think I've I've given you enough love and my love has to be spread elsewhere. Um but then uh, my problem is that like the love for the writing is so intense that um I'm always at risk of uh, paying too little attention to the people in my life, not necessarily my daughter because she's probably number one, but the other people, you know, like letting friendships go, letting all kinds of stuff go because there's just too much love and not enough time and not enough of myself. I love how you articulated that. And um, if any of my friends are listening, and I, I hope that some of them are, um, I too struggle with maintaining friendships and just the um, – yeah, just exactly as you articulated it, having so little of yourself to give um, that it feels like a luxury to be able to reach out to friends sometimes. And so for all my friends listening, I'm sorry. But um, how do you how do you manage that, Lindsay? Um, I, I think you're the first 
person who I think articulated that so beautifully about Mm. saying to your own child, I have only so much love to give right now. Can you tell us like maybe a situation where you've said Mm. that or sort of acted on that and how it turned out? Because that feels scary to do, but very necessary. Yeah. Um, well, actually, you know, the pandemic helps with that a little bit because we were just all in the same house together day and night, you know. So um, I think the part of my writing process that had been completely foreign and totally opaque, I think, to my daughter was suddenly visible in a new way. You know, she could see me literally in this corner of my room where I wrote uh, all of my second book. She could see me curled in the corner typing and she knew exactly what I was up to. And so um, I, like that was actually a great benefit, even though it was extremely hard to find the time. It was great that she could actually see what it was that I was doing. And I could say to her, this is the process to make this possible. And so I, I want to do more of this. I have to make more of these books. And that means that I have to ask for this time. And uh, you have to go keep yourself company. And um, she really did understand, you know, it's not that it was super easy or um, seamless or without any issues, but she really did understand. And uh, in a way, like that's a sort of hidden, beautiful benefit of that time, that first year, especially when there was sort of no leaving the house and we were all together. Um, so there's that. But then also, I think um, it's just part of my goal to show her with my life that there is more than motherhood and more than uh, being in the house. As much as I do absolutely love, like, cooking, <laughs> I love, love, love cooking so much. It's a huge part of my life and my social life. Uh, but, you know, I want to be able to show her with my life that there's more than whatever happens within these four walls. And the only way to show her that is to show her that. And it, sometimes it's painful and difficult, but that's just the reality of it. Yeah. Why do you think it's so important for her to see you have that life beyond the four walls of your home? Yeah. Um, well, there's lots of ways to answer that question. But uh, the main thing is that um, you know, really the only thing I can offer anybody ever, and especially the people who are most important to me in my life, The only thing I can ever offer is the totality of my being. And when I say being, I mean becoming. I always mean becoming. Um, I'm a student of Heraclitus. You know, there everything is flux. All is flux. All is flow. So, you know, there's no fixed state of being. It's all continual becoming. But the only thing I can ever offer anybody, and especially my child, is uh, the totality of my uh, becoming and being. And so... I have to show her with my life that there is a possible life for her that is um, full of imagination and play and creativity and hard work and meeting challenges, sometimes seemingly impossible challenges, meeting them and seeing what I can do with them. And the only way to show her that is to show her that, you know, it's such a silly um, truism, but it's, it's just the simple truth. And if I'm not going to show her, um, you know, she she would learn it elsewhere uh, for sure. Absolutely. You know, like we've all had to learn what we've had to learn wherever we've had to learn it. And if we needed to learn something, we went out and found a way to learn it. And we still are. Uh, but I hope that if I can show her this, you know, from a young age, that maybe that expands her possibilities as she enters 
you know, her teenage years and then her 20s and on and on and on. Yeah. What does she say um, when hmm. when she sees you writing or when you talk about your craft and your life, again, outside those four walls, outside of motherhood? Mm-hmm. Does she understand that? Yeah, she does. Um you know, I don't t- I don't talk a whole lot about the business side of writing around her. Um, for one, it's not that interesting. You know, the business side is the most depressing side, um, even though it is it's fascinating in its own way. And I do take it seriously. Uh, I don't really talk about that aspect of it. You know, I, I talk more about the creative parts of it and the parts of it that she really, really does understand because she's a she's a creator herself. She's an artist. All children are, you know, excellent artists as I'm sure you know, they're free and beautiful and unconcerned. Even though they, they want to have a loving audience, they're unconcerned with whether or not they've, you know, done it right, especially when they are first starting out and you know, drawing bugs and flowers or whatever they want to draw, create. Um, so I think what she understands more than anything is that um, expression is important. Mm-hmm. And when she sees the final product, it's um I don't know, it's it's a really overwhelming and beautiful moment for me. With my first book, she was still pretty young, like she was like four or five, I guess. And so, you know, she was at like a book release party and um, you know, she interrupted the whole thing and said, like, I want to come on stage and give you a hug, mom. And of course I said, like, come on stage, give me a hug, you know, it was great. Um, but with the second book, you know, which I just put out this past summer, she's so much older and so much more mature. And um there's a photo that someone took of her sitting in the front row watching me read. And um, the second I saw it, I just burst into tears because she just looked so, so serious. You know, I could see in her face and in her posture, just the way she was holding her body that she was watching so closely and so carefully. Um, and that's just, <laughs> it's beautiful and overwhelming, you know, because we have a, we have a strong relationship, but you know, it's not always filled every day with uh like, you know, overwhelming appreciation and gratitude, you know, sometimes we're all just getting through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like it's, it's hard when there's not a lot of time and at the, you know, the end of the night, it's like, we're all exhausted. And I remember to say, I love you, but um, you know, it's different when it's expressed, you know, so, um, so purely and in such a concentrated way. So I don't know what she says necessarily, but what she shows me is that she's watching as, you know, as, as it should be. And, um, I take that really seriously. I know she's watching, you know, just as I was watching, I am still watching, you know, and so I feel that responsibility as a kind of beautiful reminder that uh, what you do does matter. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you managed to write a book um, in those early years before uh, the first book. So if she was four when yeah. it came out, tell us about that process of yeah. writing. <laughs> yeah, it took a long time to write that first book. Um, I had the first idea uh, years before she was born. And I started working on it uh, when I was living overseas and I was still a student. And uh, I was also working. So, you know, I've always just sort of done a lot of things all at once. And I think that's just how I, how I manage, honestly. Um, I think of it like, uh, one of those spiders that uh, walks on water. Do you know what I mean? And, um, all the, all the weight is very evenly distributed. And, um, if the weight isn't evenly distributed, they, they go under. So I just have to remember to distribute all the weight (laughs) evenly, (laughs) um, between each point of contact. 
Um, but what I did for that first book is that um, I wrote it in short bits, mostly in the evening, uh, and then sometimes really early in the morning. And it ended up working, you know, and the second book was the same, um, even more intense because I had more on my plate by the time I was writing the second book. I was teaching on and off. Um, I was done with my degree, but, you know, there was moving. We were moving and um, I was also trying to like manage, I guess, my budding writing career with the first book, you know, by the time I was writing the second. So um, that one I had even less time. And then I did a lot of the, like the really difficult editing and shaping of a ton of raw material during that first pandemic year. So I just wrote in the middle of the night and very early in the morning. And, uh, it, you know, it worked. Uh, there's been moments when I've thought, my God, my books could be so much better if I would have had more time. And if I, if I just had more money and more resources, um, there's a little part of me that thinks like, could my work actually have been better? Um, and that's a dangerous path to go down for sure, because we just have to work with what we have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I've just, I've worked with what I have and I've been able to do what I've been able to do. And I hope to be able to do more. <laughs> So how is writing the third book now logistically different from writing that first book and even the second book? And mm-hmm. then we can talk about the screenplay, you know, even mm-hmm. after that, but mm-hmm. the third novel. Yeah. Um, you know, I went in, I've had the idea for this third book for a long time. And the way this third book appeared to me was very different than the way the first and second book appeared to me. This third book appeared to me um, as a more or less complete plot uh, with a title and everything, uh, which is super unusual for me. Usually I start with a character or with a series of ideas and I build, you know, from the inside out. But with this third book, um, the structure and the frame appeared to me first. And so, um, you know, with two other books under my belt and then like, you know, I had written a dissertation before. So I feel like I have a lot of experience, you know, working with, um, you know, like creating something out of nothing. Um, but with this third book, I think I, I, I started to get in my head a little bit and I thought like, I need to do it differently this time. I need more resources. I need more time. I simply can't do it the way I've done it before. I can't do it. I need to figure something else out. But, um, you know, I think I, 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 I have stepped out of my head and I've realized I, I have to work again. I have to work with what I have. And what I have is not a lot of time, but I have a ton of passion and, and drive and focus and interest and a lot of discipline that, um, you know, sometimes I doubt it, but then it always it comes back around, you know. So uh, this third book, um, I'm writing. I think I'm going a little bit slower, uh, a because I feel like this book is uh, structurally going to be really challenging for me. It's bigger than anything I've ever done before. It's three narratives that interweave and that, you know, that's more than I've ever taken on before, but I know that that's what it needs. So I'm going slowly. I'm going carefully. um, And I'm being really, I'm trying to be mindful of the fact that the frame is good and the structure is, is, is good and fine. It's good to have those things, but I know what I need out of the writing process. And that is a really deep connection with the characters and um, with either place or setting. 
Um, and I know that sounds kind of crazy because my second book is almost a placeless book. Uh, but to me, the place is that it's located is consciousness. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just doing what I can and I'm going day by day and I'm putting one foot in front of the other. And this book more than ever before, I'm counting it a success if I get like five words written in a day. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, do what you can with what you have. And Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, You mentioned doubt uh, in the process. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about doubt. Where does that come in? How do you move past it? Um, Well, I think doubt is really important um, and I don't ever want to shove it away, you know, because I want to remain skeptical of, of myself and of my work uh, because I don't want to, I don't want to produce something that, that I feel um, falsely confident about, you know? Um, And I think part of that is just the way I think and the way I work. Um, It might have something to do with the fact that, you know, I don't, I don't have an MFA and I, I don't have um, let's say the connections that a lot of other writers I know do have, um, the way that I think like in some ways, some writers seem like more safely ensconced in the writing world. And maybe that's just me looking, you know, um, looking in from the outside and maybe that's not quite the case, uh, but it seems, seems to be the case sometimes. Um, so I think I just, I need to feel really confident about what I've done, but it can't be a false confidence. And so to achieve that confidence, I have to actually question every part of the process and everything that I've done. So, uh, there's just no other way. There's no way around it. And I think the doubt is really important. We can't just shove it away. We can't shove anything away um, because the moment you try to shove something away or push something away that has arisen within you, the moment you try to shove it away, it has got you. It's really got a very strong hold on you. And so you have to just go all the way in. I have to go all the way in on that. And I'll go to the like the most uh, terrible depths of that doubt really, really terrible depths of that doubt and just see what comes up and examine what comes up. And then I, uh, I'll move forward eventually from there, but I have to like get to the, it's like a pit. I have to get to the bottom of the pit. Yeah. You know, um, I'm sure anyone who's, who's done therapy, which I have and I do recognizes that sense of something that's coming at you, a thought, an intrusive thought or doubt or whatever it is. And just like you said, if you try to shove it away, it just comes back in full force. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had never thought about that as far as the doubt that comes with trying to write um, and writing a new project and just the continuous doubt that um, I've heard every writer still feels at any stage of their process. Um, oh, yeah. So that's a really lovely way to embrace <laughs> that doubt and, like, you know, invite it in and write through it. Yeah. Uh, See what it shows you, you know, it, it will, it will teach you something, right? Like every part of writing a book, putting out a book, uh, handling the feedback from a book, every part of it, there is like, if you're ready to learn, it will teach you so, so much. And it's really fucking scary, but you know, life is short. <laughs> Embrace the fear. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. That sparked another question that I've just lost. So instead, while I think of the question that I just lost, this seems like a good moment to hear a little bit of your work. Oh, okay. So would you like to share anything of your choosing with us? Yeah. um, How's that for a prompt? I know. You know, I haven't read 
from my first book in a long time. I'm from nowhere. And this is the first cover. There's like not many left of these in the world. Um, there's a different cover now. God, I have not read from this in forever. Um, <laughs> See what it brings up for you after you're finished. Right. Reading, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I'll read the, I'll just read the first chapter of my first book. Um, Great. I'm, I'm going to give you I'm, the full screen here. So okay, take cool. it away, Lindsay. Okay. <laughs> All right, chapter one, section one. The day of the funeral arrives. Claire has known this day was coming for at least the past few days, but now she feels unable to face it. All those hands in need of shaking, all those faces in need of acknowledging, the endless hugs she'll have to give and receive. Why this injunction to publicly grieve? Must she prove to the world that she loved John, that she's crippled by his death? She is crippled by his death. This funeral is for them, not for her. Her funeral for John has been a continuous one. Puking in the toilet, clutching the little packet of tissues in her hand, wiping her mouth and wishing there were no mirror above the sink, wishing she didn't have to see her terrible face. This morning, she is watching from the window as a dog runs wildly down the street in front of her house. A leashless dog going from nowhere to nowhere. Should she go outside, see if the dog will slow down for her? Will the dog dart in front of a speeding car? Will she have to watch the dog wriggle and howl in pain as it dies? Will she comfort it? Did someone see John in his last moments, she wonders. Did someone have to watch him howl and grab at the air and gulp in his last hopeful breaths? Did that someone comfort him, usher him out? She has been conducting a private funeral since the moment of the call. A funeral with blurry borders. The grieving spilling into the puking, the clutching, the watching. She would prefer to keep doing it this way. She wants to remain in her bed, her pajamas, her air-conditioned bedroom glowing with sunlight, where she can puke on her own terms. She's spending too much time figuring out what to wear, how to put herself together. Should she be unkempt or quaffed, as though a best friend or a sister had been here to do her makeup and hair? She is alone. There is no one here today to dress her or even make her a cup of coffee. She holds a black dress, probably a gift from John, that she hasn't worn in years. Is it a beautiful dress? Should she wear a beautiful dress? How does one perform the depth of one's sadness? She cares more about what everyone, what they, will think of her than she'd like to admit. Will they think this lipstick looks too celebratory? Will they cluck their tongues if she does what she wants to and instead arrives in these worn-out flannel pants missing their drawstring and this shirt with yellowing sweat stains? Will they see in her eyes that she doesn't know if she can face them? But the important thing is to try, isn't it? Try. She will drive herself to the ceremony in this not-too-short black dress as the heat of the morning tries to break into the car to rob her of her moisture. The monsoons are almost here, but not yet. 
The heat reminds her, urges her to go back inside. It punishes her for staying outside. The sun never seems to go down. The dog is still in the street, but it's motionless now, watching her climb into the car, watching her struggle to be as still as possible until the air conditioning starts working and she can put her face in the way of one little stream of cool air. What had he said the other morning as he left, she wonders. Let's have steaks for dinner. The luxury of it seems entirely impossible to her now. She remembers once telling him, I want you to undo me. I want you to take me apart. And he had. In his death, he was doing it again. Thank you. Yeah, I'll turn this light on. There we go. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about motherhood and I'm just going to be a weird pairing, but motherhood and violence. Mm-hmm. As there's so much sort of, um, well, there's the, the very physical um, and real violence in that, even just that first chapter. And mm-hmm. then there's like this pent up feeling of grief coming out as this violent um, yeah. ocean. So tell me about that. How do you, how do you write violence as a mother? Yeah. Um, this is an interesting question because I think more recently my work has, has, um, has been a way of exploring the really complicated and uncomfortable relationship that, uh, violence and survival have. Um, so I think that's always been present in my work, but it's come out in a new way, um, with uh with some short stories and also with uh with the screenplay that I've been working on um but you know with with my first book in particular um I was I, you know I was just thinking about death and I've always been thinking about death it's just I love to think about death I think um death is a beautiful mystery <laughs> you know uh same as life life and death birth and death birth and death um beautiful mysteries that uh you know, I don't see any reason to stop exploring, um, even though they, you know, it's, I think it's hard to make a bestseller out of death unless it's, um, done in a particular, particularly sensational way, you know, um, which I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing now, maybe some other time. I don't really know, but, um, you know, though, I think that you, I had this, you know, I had a very strange experience when my daughter was born and, um, you know, we both nearly died or, you know, got very, very close to death, I guess you could say. And so um, I stopped at that point in my life. Um, I stopped thinking about death as something to fear. And I started to understand that death was something that I needed to have present in my everyday life, if that makes any sense. Um, so that's different than violence. That's, you know, that's obviously quite different than violence, but, um, it just was a, it was a life changing experience. The, the, the birth of my daughter and the very strange circumstances. I shouldn't say strange because that makes it sound like, um, bad or something, but the unusual circumstances of her arrival 
and, you know, what I saw and what I experienced and what I felt and what I went through. And, um, I, I, I realized like, if I want to write about death, I can write about death. Do you know what I mean? I can, anyone can write about whatever they want to, but if I want to write about death, I'm going to write about death and I'm not going to be ashamed of the fact that it's weird or dark or whatever. And I'm also not going to brand myself as a goth or whatever. And that's fine. People can do that. That's completely fine. That's just not what I wanted to do. And that's not how my work goes for me. So, um, you know, I just saw the fact that there's no escaping it and I'm going to write about it. And that's that. Oh my gosh. So many different directions we could go here, but, mm-hmm. um, I, so to share a little bit about something I've been working on, I think a lot about how giving birth made me realize the flip side of that love, which is the loss. Yeah. The sort of like overwhelming terror of losing that person to death. And so mm-hmm. the, the sort of the moment that that person, that being came into the world through giving her life. Yeah. It, the, like the flip side was death. And so yeah. Yeah, so I can kind of see exactly what you're saying there. And to embrace it is mm-hmm. terrifying, mm. absolutely terrifying. But you kind of have to, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, you can't fully love if you're not willing to embrace the fact that you might lose the person or the being that you that you love. Yes. Well, um, and also the birth of a child is the death of your former self. And yeah. there's no getting around that. Right. I mean, we're all being, um, you know, we're all dying and being reborn a hundred times every day. But it's a big one when you go from not being a mother to being a mother because, you know, you in so many ways you you give up who you were and you become someone new. You're broken down and you're reshaped in the image of the child. Um, like literally. Right. Like they leave yeah. DNA. They change your yes. you know, even cellular structure, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, do you mind sharing with us the story of her birth? Sure. Um, I mean, I think the particulars are not going to be super interesting. Um, but what I can share is that, um, I mean, what, like, what seems, oh, well, what seems um, relevant, you know what you I mean? Both, you both almost died. Yeah. Like, what, yeah. what happened? Yeah. Well, things were fine until they were not fine. You know, I was one of those, um, you know, like when you read the pregnancy books, um, there's like that last chapter about potential complications that are so rare. They tell you, like, don't even bother reading that chapter. It'll just scare you. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody has to be one of those like one in a million. And it turns out that was me and, and my daughter. Um, so things were fine until they were not fine, you know, and um, it remains a mystery because the doctors couldn't explain it. They shipped after after she was born, they shipped my placenta off to study it. You know, there was no meaning. There was no meaningful information. Um, what happened is that suddenly the placenta stopped working um, somewhere around like just like around six weeks till she was due. And um, she had to we discovered really rapidly that she had to come out or we both were going to die. And so, uh, you know, we went through those, like there was like 24 hours of um, really careful observation and testing, testing, testing. And then once they determined that it was as serious as they thought it was, um, they said, you know, she needs to come out probably within 12 hours. And so I, I had wanted to, I had wanted to go through labor. You know, I didn't want to just jump right into a C-section. And so, um, they said, well, you know, we can induce you, uh, but we're going to have to watch you both really, really carefully because we don't know if either of you are going to tolerate labor. Um, 
And in the moment, I was just like, okay, fine. You know, I was in the zone. I was like, I, I'll get her out. I'll get her out. I'll do whatever it takes. But looking back now, when I realized what they meant by the word tolerate was like, we don't, we literally don't know if either of you will survive this uh, next 24 hours. Um, so there were complications that, that just um, compounded. And then we reached a point where they said, um, she needs, she needs to come out immediately. So I was rushed down the hall for um, an emergency C-section. And, um, you know, it's difficult, it's difficult to characterize, but I saw, I saw a couple of things. I guess you could call them visions. I had a couple of visions and, um, I didn't make too much of them, especially not in the moment, because again, I, I, I didn't know if I was going to survive or if she was going to survive. You know, I didn't really attach any significance to them. I didn't think it, I didn't think it through. Um, but recently, very, very recently, I, um, I was, at my daughter's school watching her do something. And I, um, uh, this is, this is going to out me as a total weirdo, but I saw her doing something and I, I realized, holy fuck, this is what I saw. Wow. This is one of the things I saw in that moment. And, um, it's like the light was the quality of the light was the exact same way. She was, her body was in the posture that in the, in that, um, flash of vision her her body was in that posture and there was no face in the initial um vision because you know i didn't know her face she didn't have a face at that point um but i mean it really has thrown me for a loop since um since i saw that because i've realized like maybe my maybe my lifetime of of seeing certain things like this uh maybe i should stop writing it off as insignificant or strange or whatever i've found many ways to um, use my intellect to chase it off and i realized maybe it's time to stop doing that because my intellect is great and very strong we all have very strong wonderful intellects but that is just one part of our perceiving apparatus oh that's a great phrase your perceiving apparatus <laughs> yeah. yeah so how does this find its way into your work let's say like first mm-hmm. I'm going to use that phrase again, your perceiving apparatus and like all the different elements of it. How do you bring that into your work? And then, well, I'll stop there, but then I want to talk about motherhood. And mm-hmm. But let's start with that. How do I bring it into my work? Well, there's no way I couldn't, right? Because it's it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like all the only thing you can offer is the, you know, the totality of your being. Mm-hmm. And so um, what shows up in my work is, is, is who and what I am, even though, of course, the work is is not really me. And there has to be a clear separation between the work and myself. You know, people can't read my books and think, OK, well, now I know everything about her. I can't do that with any other creator, too. It's not fair. Um, but there's some way in which what I'm what I'm doing when I'm writing is like taking out a little slice of my soul and um, commodifying it, offering it up to the marketplace. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's no way it couldn't show up in the work. Um, but I think probably the way it shows up most is the fact that my work is, um, sort of hybrid, uh, monstrosity that it ends up being, you know, I was thinking about how, um, in your description of the, of this show and of my work, um, you called my novels experimental and that that struck me and I thought like oh yeah of course you could describe my novels as experimental novels but it was so funny to hear those words attached to my work because it made me realize 
that I have never, ever once in my entire writing life, which stretches back to the moment I could hold a pen or a pencil, I've never once in my life thought, okay, I'm going to do something experimental or I'm going to be an experimental writer or this is a really experimental project. I've just done what I've done. Do you know what I mean? And it is the way it is because there's no other way it could be. And um, I love working with editors and I will change my work a thousand times. Like I'm always open to revision. In fact, it's kind of a problem how much I want to revise and I'm never done with a piece of work ever. But I've never thought like this is experimental. I'm doing something experimental. It just is what it is because it's what my uh, my being, my becoming is producing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if that answers your question or if it's too no, far it's out. A, no, absolutely. And it's funny because I don't know where I got that word. Maybe it was from like <laughs> somewhere. I don't know. I thought it came from you, but maybe yeah. not. So somewhere the universe is um, experimenting with us in the, the bio. Um, yeah, so let's talk about motherhood and its impact okay. on your work and vice versa. I think we already touched on that a little bit, but talk about the sort of if you do find a give and take between motherhood and writing. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing motherhood has done, um, I think it can do this for everybody, and I think I shouldn't. I want to say that it's not extremely unique to motherhood, like the gifts that motherhood has given me, the way that it's expanded my my heart and my mind. I think that can happen with anything, absolutely anything. Like if you're ready to have your your mind and your heart open, so to speak, like anything can do it. Like you could just look at a leaf falling from a tree in a particular way and that could do it for you. Like if you're ready for it, you're ready for it. Um, but what motherhood did for me and the particularly um maybe unique experience uh, associated with her birth has made it so that um, I think I'm just much more of an open channel. You know, I'm an, I'm, I'm just more open and I understand like maybe even at a cellular level that um, the, the, the fact that um, we are separate people is really a, uh, only part of the picture, right? But like there is a, there is a really deep connection. There's a way in which none of us are actually separate at all, not at all. And, um, the suffering of my child is my suffering and the joy of my child is my joy. And that's just a micro version of the way we all are and the way things actually are in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, what motherhood has required of me is to hold the suffering of others inside of me uh, without falling apart and going to pieces completely while also still being able to give love and to have a kind of fierce forward directedness in the face of all that suffering. Um, and to, um, you know, to, uh, maybe I already said this, but like to meet the mystery of life with curiosity and love and uh, playfulness and uh, a lack of self-consciousness to a certain extent. And I don't know that I would have been able to do any of that before I became a mother. Um, you know, the way the way you just get totally you know, reoriented and also you lose a lot of pride too, or at least I lost a lot of pride when I became a mother because, you know, your body just becomes this vessel for something else and your body changes and you don't have control over it. 
right? Like my figure was no longer my figure. And, and then after the fact, you know, you just get tugged at, you get pulled at, you get shat on, you get thrown up on, like all of it, you know, you just have to let it go. And you, or, or you could hang on to it and be like, no, this is horrible. I'm a, I'm an adult. I'm a woman. Don't you know what you're doing? Or, you can just like go with it, be like, fuck it, this is life. You know, sometimes you just get shat on and you have to deal with it. You could, you like just shrug it off, you know? Um, so I mean, this, I could, I could go on and on and on and on, but these are some of the ways that becoming a mother, I think has made me such a better artist. Wow. Something that struck me as you were just, um, describing that, uh, change, and the, mm-hmm. sort of the, I won't call it a loss of pride. I'll say it like a relinquishment of pride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is the both the emotional and the physical there? Yeah. So it's like the suffering, but then it's also the being shat on part. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like bodily and emotional and physical and mental and all of the things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I see that, and this would be a good transition back to reading another excerpt from your oh. work. But I see that in your work that sort of. Um, that the physical, the body is very present there on the page, as well as the emotional and the mental and the philosophical and all the other. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, because I do, I do feel like I write from my, from my body, if that makes any sense. I really sure. do feel like I write from my body. But one thing people keep telling me, especially with my second book is like, wow, it's so heady. It's so heady. It's so heady. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, people can think whatever they want. I, you know, I don't care. It's not in my control anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm a, I'm a bodily writer. What to read? Oh, yes. Okay. So let's read and then talk more about bodies because I think uh, I was always terrified of pregnancy and motherhood. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about that a lot on the show, but mm-hmm. something that becoming pregnant taught me or led me to was um, really uh, connecting with my body in a way that I never had and had always been afraid to. And it was that loss of control. Like, I, I can't control the way that it's growing and what's happening inside and all of these things and the birth and all that stuff. Yeah. And it was very, I think you could say, a relinquishment of pride or control or um, mm-hmm. intellect or, um, you know, the I'm a very sort of intellectual, like, heady person. Yeah. And so being forced to live in the present in my body was very surprisingly wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it would be awful, but it was surprisingly wonderful. So I'm interested yeah. to hear your journey and how that mm. comes out in your work. So mm-hmm. okay. whatever you want to do first. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> such a, it's such a strange book. Um, okay. I think I'm going to read. I, I literally just flipped open to section 44 and um, okay. bodies is in the like in the first two sentences. So I thought, OK, I'll just I'll just read that. I don't think I've ever read this one out loud. Okay, this is section 44 from my second book, uh, What Are You? Uh, I'm not going to try to explain this book. I'm just going to read this section to you. <laughs> okay, let's place our bodies at the scene again. Bodies? Is that even what they are? Who cares? There's something beautiful in your ability to evade. I see it best with my eyes closed. You resist all forms of capture especially language you evade language with all the forces with all the force of the forces that created it you evade your creations co-creations with the force of the forces that explode them 
big bang them into existence. With you, I'm like a woman in Hollywood. There's no glamour. Forget that. Wipe it from your mind. With you, I'm like a woman in Hollywood who swears she won't be one of the ones to get a new face, new body, new psyche if she makes it, really makes it. But by the time she's made it, so many sacrifices have been made. So many concessions to the industry and its aesthetic and its expectations that it's too late. It's already begun before the knife ever comes out. The knife and the needle just finalize the transformations that have been ongoing slowly and quickly internally for years, maybe decades. It's not for me to say whether it's good or bad. I just know that I am subject to the same powers and pressures and forces, and I hate it, and it's you who's done it. I hate it, hate it, and start to love it with all of me. It's a compression, a process like being made into meat sludge and pressed into a disc, wrapped in plastic, and stacked on some refrigerated shelf. But back to the bodies. I'm ready to imagine it. I'm on your arm again. I'm wearing the dress you want me to wear. My shoulders back the way you like. My hair to just one side the way you like. And with my lips against your ear, I say, fuck, I'm so high. In a tone that suggests a promising lack of self-control because I know it's exactly what you want to hear. I am ready to let you chop me into pieces because I know how to keep leaving and returning. Is this fun? I wonder. It's something. I don't even need you to want it anymore. I have learned, like every galaxy, to be the producer, recycler, destroyer of all energy. I am dangerously self-contained, self-sustained, potentia gaudendi ad infinitum. You are the force that will eventually make the Milky Way and Andromeda collide. But no matter, baby, so am I. You look at me funny. I feel it in me. And I see that what's happening is I can get behind and underneath you and it begins to unnerve you. What am I? You start wondering, though you've never wondered it before. Queer, you say. Queer little thing. Queer as an opportunist, you say. And I think I might smile quietly inside, understanding that for some time I've been the site of your laundering. Oh, it's quite simple. How sad. But none of it has worked. Because of course it can't. You cannot be reborn, fucking me on the living room floor. I established years ago that there was no living room and no floor, to say nothing of the me. The floor and the fucking are gone, so gone. The camera cuts away, and you slap me so hard you knock a tooth out of my mouth. But I'm kind of smiling. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Sure. Beautiful, again, and violent, and uh, philosophical, and Mm. all of the things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can't get over the phrase meat sludge. That is... (laughs) is, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So have you always, I mean, back to the question about bodies and living in your body, have you always been sort of in your body and aware of what it's doing and... um, sort of in the present moment, or were you always sort of more intellectual or could you find a balance between the two? Um, You know, I think as a young child, I had a really good balance, uh, really a great balance between the two. But, you know, then I learned the things you're supposed to learn, Um, you know, which it, it, 
it went all over the place from me thinking that, okay, I just need to be pure intellect and that's the way I'll finally be respected. You know, that was like, that was me in my, uh, in my twenties, you know, um, okay, fine. I'll just be pure intellect. Like I'm just going to forget that I'm a body. Uh, whereas, you know, like in my teens, maybe I, I, I went further in the other direction of like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just have a great body and then maybe someone will love me. Right. <laughs> um, but, um, I've always had a, I've always had a, I think I've always been a very sensitive person. You know, a lot of a lot of people who end up, um, you know, doing artwork of some sort or another are, are just kind of sensitive. I've always had a super sensitive um, apparatus, I guess you could say. And I've always had a real problem with um, feeling other people's feelings as my own feelings, um, especially when I was a child. And it's taken me a long time to sort through that. And now I'm finally really good at assessing when I'm in the room with someone who has very strong feelings and I can feel them as my own feelings. I'm now finally good at saying that is someone else's heartbreak. Um, I can accept it and feel it. And, and if they want to talk about it, and work through it, we can maybe do that together. Uh, but that is not my heartbreak, you know, and I've had to it's taken a long time to develop that ability to separate and individuate without cutting off or without closing off my heart so to speak. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I think, uh, at this point in my life, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how to be more fully integrated, you know, how to accept that I am what I am. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know that. Actually, don't know that I have a really good answer for you. To be perfectly no, honest. I think that was a yeah. great answer. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. And I remembered a question I wanted to ask. So we're going to go oh, way back good. for a second. Okay. Good. Um. Yeah. To community and MFA programs. Mm-hmm. I also don't mm-hmm. have MFA and sort of found myself um found my way into the literary community in a roundabout way. So. Let's talk about that. Did you at one point think you wanted to get an MFA? Did you decide not to? How did you find your way to um, publishing? Um, well, I think when I was very young, like when I was a teenager and, um, you know, there was the possibility of, well, just figuring out what I was going to do with my life. Um, I wanted to I wanted to study creative writing, but I wasn't able to because um, I, I couldn't afford it. You know, um, I went to the state school that I got into because, you know, I was in like maybe like the top 20% of my graduating class or something. And the, the one state school that was smaller and was struggling to get students, they said, if you're in the top 20% of your graduating class, you'll get in for sure. And you're going to get a partial tuition waiver. And that was my only option. So I went to the, the state school that I could go to. Um, and I almost didn't go to school at all. I almost followed, <laughs> I almost made a, um, what probably would have been a mistake, but I almost followed, um, someone to, um, the middle of nowhere, you know, someone, an older person that I was totally, totally obsessed with and infatuated with and whatever. Um, but I, so I went there and I studied, I found philosophy. Um, I wanted to study creative writing, but then I found philosophy. I took a philosophy class and was like, holy shit, holy shit, this is it. This is totally it for me. Um, and of course I was, you know, I was a baby, so I was just starting out. Um, so then I got my, I was nearly done with my philosophy degree when I realized I needed to have a job. Like the minute I graduated, um, I wasn't going to be able to go right to grad school or anything because I just didn't have any of that in place. You know, I didn't have a, yeah, I, 
simple as I didn't have the money. So I, um, I really quickly tacked on an education degree as well. So I got an education degree and I started my career as a teacher, a classroom teacher, full-time classroom teacher. And I did that for a few years until I realized I was not done with philosophy or maybe philosophy was not done with me. I'm not sure how to characterize it. But then I, um, so, you know, I applied to all the graduate programs that I wanted to possibly go to. And, um, you know, when you, I don't know if it's still the same, actually, uh, but, you know, when you apply for a PhD in philosophy, you either get in and they fund you or you don't get in at all. So I, you know, I got in at a couple of places and um, I went to one and it worked out fine. But the writing was very much on the wall about the humanities and academia. And so I went in knowing that I was probably not ever going to be able to work in philosophy um, or in academia. And that, you know, that's 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 been the case. You know, I was right about that. And um, the jobs are just not there. So, um, you know, I while I was finishing my dissertation, I was writing. I'm from nowhere. And I was teaching and um, I also started doing some translation work. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And I just, you know, I went further into the writing side of things and left behind the, the academic stuff more and more, even though it's still a very big part of me. Um, you know, my engagement with philosophy is still extremely important to me. Um, I just accept the fact that it'll never happen professionally, and that's fine. So... uh yeah, I mean, the way I find my way into writing is I just realized, okay, I've got, I've got a book. Um, I know, I think I didn't realize at the time that it was maybe a little bit extra unconventional. I just thought like this, it's a book. I wrote a book, like, and I think it's done. I think, you know, so I started chopping it around and, um, yeah, I, I, I just did what people said to do. Like you try to find an agent. I, I couldn't find an agent then. I, I have an agent now, but I couldn't find an agent then. Um, they, you know, some great agents were very helpful and they said things like, yeah, great work. Like keep going. Um, we just, you know, you need to make a name for yourself. Like we need, you know, we need to see what you can do first. So go ahead, do what you can do. So I realized I should turn to the indie world and, um, you know, I've, I had liked a lot of indie stuff and I'd kept up with independent publishing a bit. But it seemed kind of clickish, and I wasn't really sure how I was going to find a way in at all um, until I found Clash, and um, they published this anthology called Tragedy Queens, and uh, I thought this seemed like the sort of place that might be open to my work, and I think I'm interested in what they're up to. And so, um, you know, the rest is history. Like, Clash was great. They were wonderful, supportive, um and I mean, especially with my second book, like they kind of went to bat for me because it um, it's it is it is strange and experimental. And uh, by the time that second book came out, they had distribution, um, which means that, you know, there's um there's a little bit more. Uh, it's a, it's a little bit more difficult to get just any book published, you know, it, it with distribution involved. Um, they want to know that it. Is probably going to sell and they want to know how to categorize it. They want to know exactly where it should go in the bookstore. Um, so genre needs to be clear, stuff like that. And none of that is clear with what are you? So, um, I'm immensely thankful that Clash, um, sort of took on, took that on and believed in the book, you know, as strongly as they did. Um, so that's it. You know, I found my way in and, and I'm just going to, just going to keep going. Yeah. 
Persistence, yeah. but also just finding your people, it sounds like. Yeah, and just trying to be creative, you know, just yeah. saying like, okay, fine. So like I get and being honest with myself, like, okay, so like big four, big five, whatever, they are not interested right now with my first book. They are not, they're clearly not interested. I need to just be honest with myself and go where I can go. Um, and it's not that I believed super duper strongly in my work or anything. It was just like, well, why not keep trying? You know, I've come this far. Like I, I, I wrote this book. You know, I, I'm done with a PhD. Like, I know what it takes. I know how hard it is, how laborious it is to take something all the way from the idea stage to something like completion. So it could just sit in the drawer forever. That's fine. But I may as well try. Keep trying. Absolutely. Yeah. And it paid off, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with just a few minutes left, um, what message would you give to other writer mothers out there who are struggling with all of these issues that we've talked about? If you had to give them one one message, what would it be? One message. Um, yeah, this is it. Uh, it's that everything you seek is already within you. philosophical and wise (laughs) thank you Lindsay of course it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and hearing bits of your work and (laughs) we'll come back when the third book comes out oh yeah it'll be my pleasure yeah absolutely thank you so much for having me it's been such a delight I feel like we could just keep talking all night oh we absolutely could so you just have to come back okay (laughs) thank you Lindsay of course thank you And thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, if you enjoyed Writer Mother Monster as much as I enjoy producing it, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help me keep the podcast running. You can find more information on WriterMotherMonster.com. And we'll be back next week with another guest. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you all again next Thursday. Have a great week.